summer, the best time of year usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Eight score ago, Honest Abe brought forth on this continent a new question, conceived in mathematics and dedicated to the proposition that all numerical adjectives are created equal. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. This week, we investigate the word score, and we answer a fascinating question about English plurals. In our Killer Bunnies episode back in April, we also talked about the use of dozen, and that got us thinking about the other words based on numerical systems, specifically the use of score to represent 20. If you were paying attention during history class, you probably remember that Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in 1863 begins four score and seven years ago. But what the heck was four score and seven years ago? Well, according to Ben's guide, part of the government printing office, quote, a score is another way of saying 20. So Lincoln was referring to 1776, the year the U.S. declared independence from England, which was 87 years before 1863, unquote. So where does the word score come from and what's its meaning? Well, according to the online etymology dictionary, it came from the late Old English scora, meaning 20, which came from the Old Norse score, meaning a mark, notch, or incision. More on that connection later. The Celts of Central Europe likely introduced the word to the English and French. One of the meanings of the noun score in the Macmillan Dictionary is, quote, a group of 20 people or things, unquote. And it's marked as a literary usage, meaning it's not part of modern, everyday language. We have to go all the way back to 1100 to see the first recorded use of the word in this sense, according to the OED. But Merriam-Webster also cites an example of score as a numerical adjective, as in four score and seven years. The adjectives three score and four score are considered archaic synonyms for 60 and 80, according to the OED. Interestingly, score is not commonly used with other numbers in that way, although the OED does have some rare examples, such as he died at two score, referring to age, from Hallowell Sutcliffe's 1899 book titled Shameless Wayne. And in case you ever want to break out a four score in your own writing, it's typically written as one word today, but before the 1900s, you could also find it hyphenated or written as two separate words. So now we know what old Abe meant in his speech. But how did the word come to mean 20? Well, that's an interesting story, so hold on for the ride. This usage comes from the vigesimal number system. Vigesimal comes from the Latin vicissimus, meaning 20th. According to Wikipedia, this system, also called base 20 or base score, uses units of 20. 
This is similar to the decimal number system based on 10 that you're so familiar with if you were paying attention in math class. But a vigesimal system has 20 places instead of the 10 in our decimal system. You may be thinking, that's cool, Grammar Girl, but why? Well, as I mentioned before, the original Old Norse score meant mark, notch, or incision. The Online Etymology Dictionary notes that the idea of using score to mean 20 probably came from, quote, counting large numbers of a passing flock of sheep, etc., by making a notch in a stick for each 20. Makes sense, right? But why a notch at 20 and not 10 or 17, for that matter? Well, some people think it's because if you count on your fingers and toes, you get to 20. I guess if people got creative and included their ears, we could have a base 22 system. Now, you may be surprised to know, we were, that vigesimal systems are used all over the world in many different languages. According to Wikipedia, the most notable example is French, except in a handful of locations. Dictionary.com further explains that in French, quatre vingt or 80, literally means four twenties, and quatre vingt dix or 90, translates to four twenties ten. Wow. But wait, there's more. Besides French, Wikipedia lists the following languages, among others, as using vigesimal systems. The Aztecan and Mayan languages of Mexico and northern Central America, Inuit, Yupik, and Unangan, spoken in Alaska, Basque from the Basque country, an autonomous community of Spain, Asian languages in Bhutan, India, Japan, and Siberia, and the Maori language of New Zealand. So let's go back to Dozen for a minute. In Grammar Girl episode 922, we learned that the singular dozen does not require the preposition of after it, as in a dozen eggs. But the plural dozens of eggs, referring to an indefinite, not exact number, does. Well, score can also refer to an indefinite number. One of the definitions Merriam-Webster lists for score is an indefinitely large number. And Macmillan Dictionary includes the definition a large number of people or things. But unlike dozen, both the singular score and the plural scores require of. As in, we need a score of volunteers for the food drive, or scores of volunteers signed up to help with the food drive. Well, I told you it'd be a wild ride, at least for those of us who aren't mathematically inclined. If you're a math nerd, check out the Wikipedia article on vigesimal systems, which blew our grammar nerd minds. As always, language is full of fun surprises, scores and scores of them. That segment was written by Susan Herman, a retired U.S. government multidisciplined language analyst, analytic editor, and language instructor. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules? 
only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life. Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then with phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Next, I have an interesting question from a listener. Hi, Grammar Girl. I have a pronunciation question. I've noticed that people who have Spanish or Portuguese as their first language tend to pronounce the letter S with an S sound, like when they speak English, even in words where native English speakers would use a Z sound. This got me to thinking, how do native English speakers know whether S should be pronounced as S or Z when we form plurals? When we add S to a noun to form a plural, we instinctively know which way to pronounce it, even for new or unfamiliar words. We say cats with an S sound, but dogs with a Z sound. What are the rules that determine which sound to use? And why do we have these two ways of pronouncing the same letter? Thanks for taking my question. Thank you for the question. You've noticed a real thing in English. The S sound we use to make plurals seems to change depending on the word it follows. For example, when you pluralize words like cat, lip, or peak, you get an S sound on the end. Cats, lips, peaks. But when you pluralize words like dog, rib, or bed, the plural ending sounds more like a Z sound. 
And then, to add to the linguistic chaos, the plurals of words like horse, leash, or judge aren't content to just tack on an S or a Z, but also need us to toss in another vowel sound, as in horses, leashes, and judges. So what is going on with our plurals, and how on earth do all native speakers of English seem to just know which sounds go where? Well, there actually is a method to the madness. The sound we use in each case depends on the last sound in the word when it's singular. So, for example, take the word cat, a word that ends in a T sound. Now, T sounds are what we call voiceless sounds in English, a group of sounds that also include sounds like S, SH, F, and K. When we talk about a sound being voiceless, it just means that the vocal folds, the flaps on top of your larynx that make speech sounds. These folds are pulled apart as air passes through them. And when that happens, the vocal folds don't vibrate. In contrast, voiced sounds like Z, V, D, N, and G are created when the vocal folds are pulled close together and air is forced through them, which makes them vibrate. To get a sense for this difference in voicing, put your hand on your Adam's apple, roughly midway down your neck, and say S, 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 and then Z, 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 do it, I'll wait. Do you feel the difference? That buzzing you feel when you make the Z sound is caused by vocal fold vibration or voicing. Making an S sound, on the other hand, doesn't make that buzzing noise, so it's called a voiceless sound. So why does this matter in terms of whether your plural endings sound more like an S or a Z? Well, it matters because when the sound on the end of the word you're pluralizing is a voiceless sound, like the P in hip or the T in pet, your plural ending will also come out as a voiceless S, as in hips and pets. But when the word you want to pluralize ends in a voiced sound, like the B in rib or the D in kid, then you use a voiced Z sound on the end for the plural instead, as in ribs and kids. And why does this happen? Because of something called progressive voicing assimilation, which is a fancy way of saying that the voicing or vocal fold vibration of one sound spills over onto the sound that follows. In other words, it makes the plural come out sounding like an S or Z, depending on what sound came before it. So a voiceless singular word stays voiceless when it's pluralized, and a voiced word stays voiced when it's pluralized. This is your body's way of being efficient. You just continue to either hold the vocal folds apart or pull them together when pronouncing those two sounds one after the other, rather than switching. But importantly, we don't do this when an S or Z sound is part of a root word itself rather than part of the plural suffix, because most of the time, if we change an S sound to a Z sound in the words themselves, it changes the meaning, like making bus sound like buzz. For the plural ending, though, there's no competing meaning for the S or Z sounds, so it doesn't matter, and vocal efficiency wins every time. Now, what about those plurals that sound more like EZ, like what we find on purses, noses, and leashes? Well, let's think about some of the words like this, horse, sash, and rose. 
All the words that take a vowel sound before the S or EZ are words that also end in a specific group of sounds linguists call sibilants. These include S, Z, S, H, and those at the end of words like judge and lunch. Now, since the plural suffix is itself a sibilant sound, if you tried to tack it directly onto a word ending in another sibilant sound, it would be both hard to say and even harder to understand. Just try saying buses with an S and no vowel. Bus. <laughs> so we add a vowel between the end of the word and the plural S so we can actually pronounce it. And because vowel sounds are voiced sounds, the S that follows is pronounced like a voiced Z, just like before. What's really interesting is that the same thing happens with many other suffixes, even though we're less likely to notice it. For example, think of the apostrophe plus S we add to nouns to make them possessive, such as mignons or pats. Notice that when the name ends in N, which is a voiced sound, the possessive S sounds like a Z, mignons. But when we add the possessive S to the name Pat, which ends in a voiceless T sound, it came out as a voiceless S, Pats. We find the same thing happening with verb suffixes, too. For example, the S we put on verbs so they agree with nouns, as in Pat claps or mignon sings, also alternate between an S and Z sound, depending on what sound the name ends with, if it was voiced or voiceless. And last but not least, that ED ending that signals past tense on verbs? Well, when spoken rather than written, that ED is said as either a T sound, as in clapped, laughed, or a D sound, as in jogged, sobbed, depending on, you guessed it, whether the final sound in the word it's attaching to ends in a voiceless or voiced sound. And if a verb ends in a T or D sound, as in rotted or padded, there's a vowel that gets inserted to make it easier to say, just like the sibilant sounds and the plural suffixes we just talked about. So what starts out seeming very random and chaotic is actually very rule-governed and predictable. And this pattern is something that native speakers just pick up as babies when we're learning the rules of our language without any trouble. Unfortunately, though, it can be quite a challenge for non-native speakers to learn these rules. It's much harder as an adult. People tend to learn oversimplified rules about making plurals with an S sound, and that gets reinforced by seeing an S in the spelling. If you're struggling to learn, remember that the pronunciation is driven by the sound that comes before it. Words that end with voiced sounds like rib and kid are made plural with a voiced Z sound at the end. And if you're a native English speaker, you can just marvel at all the cool things you subconsciously know how to do and sympathize with people who have to learn it as adults. That segment was written by Valerie Friedland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of Like Literally, Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. You can find her at ValerieFriedland.com. And finally, I have a familect story from April. Hi, Mignon. My name is April, and I'm coming calling from just outside of Detroit. I have a familect for you. For many generations, uh, my grandmother, one of the sweetest 
people in the world also had one of the riots and sense of humor. And her thing was, if you wanted to know what was for dinner, it annoyed her. And so her response was always, sweet will catch a meadow. She don't catch a meadow. So everyone in the family always knew if she said that whatever you get is what you get and you have to eat it and get over it. But that was her word. And I've never heard of anyone else using that word. So I guess that does constitute a family. My grandmother, Beth, would always tell you that for dinner, we were having Sweet Catch Meadow. Enjoy your show. Thank you so much for what you do. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks so much, April. That is definitely a familect, and I haven't heard anything like that either. I did some Google searches using different possible spellings or word combinations and got that rare Google response you get when absolutely nothing matches your query. And it reminds me of the call we played a few weeks ago with Sheila's Belgian father saying the equivalent of a little bit of this and a little bit of that all mixed together when asked what's for dinner. It makes me wonder if other families have unusual words to answer that question. Maybe it's a fertile ground for familect creation. Thanks again for the call. If you want to share the story of your familect, a word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 83-321-4-GIRL. Call from a nice quiet place and we might play it on the show. Grammar Girl is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and our director of podcasts, Adam Cecil. To our digital operations specialist, Holly Hutchings, our ad operations specialist, Morgan Christensen, and our marketing associate, Davina Tomlin, who recently attended what they hope will be the first of many tango classes. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.